0: And so then what I want to do now is I want to cap this, this series on having a culture of prayer, being a people that live as a house of prayer. I want to cap it with the, the biblical prescription, that's what I call it, the, the prescribed actions for the body of Christ, for the people of God, when there is trouble in the earth, when there is uh, havoc happening, The Lord is very clear as to what the prescription for the people of God is. And I want to just work through it. He gives us the book of Joel as a template. It is a prophetic template that tells us how we are to respond in times of crisis, in times of trial, and in times ultimately of judgment. When the judgments of the Lord are in the earth, he calls his people to, res- uh, to respond in a certain way. And here's the, the statement I want to make that's going to be the, the overarching statement. Whereas right now we operate in worship and prayer ceaselessly in the house of prayer, and many, many ministries have, have a real focused and aggressive uh, prayer going on, I mean 20, 40, 60 hours a week, hundreds of places in the earth, maybe thousands with a very aggressive focus on prayer, even a vision for 24/7 in many, many places. As that's our current reality, that is going to continue and expand in a great way until we're going to see ceaseless prayer uh, come together like a mosaic all over the earth. So there's a, a, going to be a global atmosphere of worship and incest that never ceases all over the earth. That's coming to the earth. Isaiah 62 identifies that. The Lord says he's already set watchmen in place who would cry out night and day. That's a global community that cries out ceaselessly unto Jerusalem becoming a praise and ultimately, that, that unto Jerusalem becoming a praise, that equals the Lord Jesus on the planet in Jerusalem. And so this is the, the end time agenda, but this is where it's gonna go. It's gonna go from what we're seeing in a prayer movement happening right now to a, a time when we're gonna be not simply in ceaseless prayer, but we're gonna actually be in ceaseless solemn assembly. Ceaseless solemn assembly. Now here's the thing. Currently we operate in prayer and then we gather to solemn assemblies. Ministries like The Call have have rallied believers together in solemn assemblies for the last decade or so in massive gatherings of fasting and prayer to cry out to the Lord for mercy in order to avert crisis and judgment and ask the Lord to release blessing and revival uh, even though that our sin in uh, our nation and in other nations has become very great. Well, there's a time coming, ultimately, before the day of the Lord, when those uh, ceaseless prayer gatherings, the houses of prayer and praying church, and the idea of the solemn assembly, those are going to merge, and we're going to be in a what I would say is a perpetual solemn assembly mode. Now, there's my umbrella statement. And let me now walk us through Joel 1 and 2 and explain the template that's going on here. Now, the prophet Joel is prophesying in a day prior to 580 B.C. uh, BC. He's prophesying prior... To the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. If you're not familiar with that, essentially, Babylon swept down upon Israel in the southern kingdom, and he in three different waves, and they absolutely destroyed uh, the southern kingdom of Israel. They burnt the temple to the ground, and they took hundreds of thousands of Jews captive to Babylon. It's a critical piece of information you've got to know about the Old Testament because if you don't understand that, then you don't really get what the Old Testament prophets are prophesying about. That's, uh, the, that was like the, the major turning point when Babylon sweeps down on Israel, on Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom. And that happens in finality. It happens in 606. 586 is the first there's another wave in 595 and then 606. Three waves, Babylon comes and wipes, essentially wipes uh, Jerusalem and Israel off the map. And they stay wiped off the map for about 70 years. And then they come out of captivity. And that's where we get you know, the, the, the prophetic books like Haggai and Zechariah, when they're coming out of captivity and they're gonna rebuild the temple. Nehemiah. So Joel is prophesying prior to that time. It's important to understand the context. Prior to what we would call a historic day of the Lord. Now, there are day of the the Lord events throughout the scripture where the Lord releases judgment because of sin. And over 30 times in the Old Testament, that phrase, day of the Lord, is used. And each time it's speaking of an historic day of the Lord where the Lord brings judgment on his people because of sin. What he's doing is he's allowing foreign armies, he raises up foreign armies to bring a disciplinary action on the people of God so that they would repent of their sin and turn back to God. And he identifies this in Isaiah 10 in a real clear way. He says, I use the foreign army as a rod of correction in my hand. I use a foreign nation as a rod. And so throughout the Old Testament, we have these historic days of the Lord where the Lord released judgment on the people of God. Now, here's the thing you got to know about the historic days of the Lord. All of them, all of them point to the final day of the Lord when the Lord Jesus returns to end the military conquest of the nations by Antichrist Jesus comes to end Antichrist's reign on the earth and that there's many many different details to that but all of the days of the Lord historically are a prefigure or a prophetic sign that point to that final day of the Lord. So when we have the book of Joel we've got to understand its historic and it's eschatological. In other words, it points to the past, and that event that happened in the past points us to the future. Does this make sense? Good. All right, let's begin just to work through what's going on here in Joel's day. Joel says, in verse two of chapter one, I just, when when I read these verses, it just, it, I get butterflies in my stomach because the, um, the way that this, it applies to us and, and the way that it parallels the season of time in which we live. So Joel prophesies. He says, hear this, verse two, hear this, you elders, and give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days? or even in the days of your fathers. In verse three, he says, essentially mark it down. He goes, tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. He goes, what's happening right now to you, Israel, is historic, and I want you to pass it on through the generations. I want you to mark this time take it seriously and and tell it to your children and have their children to have them tell it to their children and the children's children this needs to be a time when you take notice that's what he's saying and here's why I'll give you to you the, I'll give you the verses in a minute but I'll just tell you what happens the lord at that time because of Israel's waywardness and their their worship of false gods, the Lord releases several different plagues on Israel. The first plague is a plague of locusts. The next plague is a drought. And then the next plague is, is a fire plague. You get all of that in Joel chapter one. Locusts, drought, and fire. And here's what happens. We don't understand the uh, implications of a locust plague, but when you have an economy that's totally built on agriculture, as it was in Israel in that day, one locust plague will completely cripple the, the agriculture and destroy the crop cycle and completely turn everything upside down. One locust plague. You're talking about millions of locusts devouring hundreds of thousands of pounds of crops uh, daily. And the whole time they're going along, they're laying eggs. They're multiplying at an exponential rate. And what happens is there are so many. It fills the sky and it actually blots out the sun darkens the land and the whole sound across the land it sounds like fire devouring as these as these locusts are continuously chewing and destroying everything that they can get their hands on any greenery in their path it's it's i mean it's devastating we go you know locust plague okay some bugs came and we, we just don't you know like kind of flying grasshoppers we don't get it but what's going on there is real real severe and, and intimidating and fearsome, and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, look at verse four. Joel says, "I want you to mark it down, take note." He goes, "What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten, and what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust is eaten. These are not simply different names for the same kind of bug. These are four different kinds of locusts. Here's what happened they got hit with four successive locust plagues, four in a row. One plague cripples the economy. The second plague comes along and they begin to eat, you know, the nubs. The third plague comes along and they're eating. You know, the wooden stems of the nubs. The fourth plague comes along and I don't even know what's left, but they're eating that. Four in a row. He goes, Joel's prophecy, nothing like this has ever happened. Take note. There are incredible parallels. I'm gonna touch base on them in a minute. We 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 have not had a, so to speak, a locust problem in our nation or in the earth, you know, as as far as it's relating to the uh, global food supply. Though I did see a a really weird article today, actually, about uh, some kind of Asian superbug that is destroying many crops. It's just odd. I saw the headline this morning, destroying many crops in the food supply in our in our national food supply. But we haven't had a locust problem per se, but we have uh, things that are devouring us. We have sin issues that, by and large, uh, people are embracing that we may not recognize the toll that it's taking on the morality in our nation and the global morality. I was in Germany um, about six years ago, and basically in Germany where I was at, every restaurant was a bar. You just that's where you went to eat, and uh, and I was sitting there talking to this uh, this guy that he, he wasn't a believer, and we were just I was you know talking about the Lord with him, and 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 he said because uh, you know he was kind of interested. What's this American doing here? And and so I said I'm, I'm here for a conference, and we started talking. And he just said, he goes, let me ask you a question. He goes, what's wrong with you Americans? Why won't you legalize homosexual marriage? That's he goes, that's the weirdest thing that you won't sign off on that. Because you guys are so prude and you're so conservative and what's wrong with you? And it dawned on me that there is a, Kind of a, uh, at least in Europe, but I think it's way more than Europe, but there is a uh, global influence in regard to, say, uh, people's view on alternative lifestyles, homosexuality, perversion, that you just are supposed to allow anything that anybody wants to do as long as it, quote unquote, doesn't hurt anybody else. And his mentality was just like, we're just so off in left field that we wouldn't legalize gay marriage. Well, here we are six years later and there's six states in Washington, D.C. now that all um, have legalized gay marriage and it's, and it's beginning to sweep our nation. And, uh, and until even you know in California, they vote against it and then it gets, it gets litigated in the courts. I don't know if you guys followed this. Litigated in the courts and the judge that presides is a homosexual and he strikes it down, strikes down the vote. That doesn't sound legal, but it it's passed. And so what is happening is there's a spirit of perversion and homosexuality that's taking over. Beloved, if I was saying this 15 years ago, people would be in shock. Now I'm saying it, and it's just we just kind of know. Beloved, mark it down. Nothing like that has ever happened. It's never happened in our history, in the history of the world, where there is a global consensus that homosexual marriage is okay. The United Nations just passed a resolution agreeing that homosexual marriage is okay. And so we may not be looking at bugs devouring crops but we're looking at, and homosexuality isn't the only issue. I'm just using that as one example. We are looking at a, a, a sin status in the earth that has never been before in the history of the planet. We need to take heed of Joel uh, Chapter 1, 2, and 3 where he says, mark this time down. It's never happened before. I can say to you with confidence, we are in a time of the proliferation of sin and the spirit of the age and the Antichrist spirit that um, uh, people are embracing in a massive way that has never happened before in the history of the planet. We got to wake up to this hour that we're living in and be instructed So in in Joel 1, they go through the four locust plagues and their entire economy, their entire society, the agriculture is completely decimated. But what happens is this. On the heels of the locust plague, the only thing that can fix that is rain. If you get some rain, it'll start to cause the seed Cycle and, and, and agrarian cycle to begin to, to reproduce. Well, what happens? The people don't take note, and the Lord withholds the rain. And so, what happens is any of the little things that begin to bud and sprout after the locust plagues, they're all shriveled in the vine. Look at verse 11. He's identifying the drought here. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered, and surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. It's another wave of judgment. And the people are not waking up. We have had in our nation historic flooding and tornadoes this year. Never happened before. The number of tornadoes and the concentration of them and the number of floods have beaten the historic records this year, beloved. It's like another wave. And by and large, we we kind of just keep going business as usual. It's crazy how we just keep going business as usual. I just read a, uh, now this isn't like a, a, a news report on sort of like Apocalypse Now website. This is on weather.com. Weather.com. And it said, Seismologists predict that a record-setting, never-before-been earthquake is imminent on the west coast of the United States. And they give the reasoning, and they talk about, in a certain area, they built dams, and when they built these dams, they, these smaller earthquakes have ceased for a certain period of time, and, and what the, the deal is, is because the smaller earthquakes have all stopped, they're saying that the, the pressure in the, in the plates has built up to an you know, unimaginable level. It's a never-before level of tension in those plates. And, and the guys that know it, the guys that know the science, are looking at this, and they said, no, 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 this will be the biggest earthquake, essentially, that we've ever seen. On the San Andreas Fault in California. That's, it's not, this isn't doomandgloom.com saying that. This is weather.com. And we're looking at these things, and it's just wild to me. We're just like those guys in the book of Joel that Joel's prophesying to. The, the things keep happening, and it's what happens is. You know, you, you get a tsunami five years ago, you know, and it, and it wreaks havoc in the Middle East, and so you sort of just get warmed up, and then you have like the Haiti earthquake and, and the Japanese earthquake and the tsunami and all these different things, and you sort of just get used to the fact that there are massive ecological disasters happening until right next door in Alabama, this tornado cluster destroys Tuscaloosa. And in Joplin, Missouri, I mean, just wipes it off the map. And we're just kind of like, just whatever, just going about our business. And I'm telling you, there's got to be a sound amongst the people of God that says, hey, something is up, seriously up right now. And and I tell you, I want to see mass numbers of souls come to salvation in Jesus. But hear me very clearly, mass numbers of souls coming to salvation in Jesus isn't going to happen through our modern church growth efforts. We've got to have something of another order, something of another kind, something of kingdom power released to see the tide switched, to see the the culture in the earth changed, and to see the power of God descend. We've got to follow the biblical prescription for how to see things change, and then we'll see the activity of heaven released in the earth. And so in Joel 1, four locust plagues, and they don't wake up. A massive drought that follows the plagues, and they don't wake up. And so what happens is because everything is, is uh, dried up and there's no, there's no water, fires start. And fires begin to burn in the open fields and continue to devour anything in its path. We have historic fires right now taking place on the West Coast. We've had challenges with fires. There are so many... D- disaster things happening right now i read a report just a couple of weeks ago that fema they said you know we are completely uh, we're on pace to have no no money at all available for federal emergencies you know by by april may timeframe they're forecasting we're we're not going to have any any cash to do anything for to do anything to to help if there was major crises So look at verse 19. Here's the fire verses. What I'm doing is I'm just walking you through it so you can understand this thing when you read it. For years, I'd read it and go, man, locusts and dried up trees and looks like the cattle are on fire. What does that mean? It's really not too hard. Three successive plagues and the people didn't wake up. Verse 19, O Lord, to you I cry out, Joel's interceding, for the fire has devoured the open pastures and a flame has burned all the trees of the field the beasts of the field also cry out to you for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the open pastures so here they are they're in this they're in this situation that's unmatched in terms of ecological disaster and and obviously, the people are not responding to the Lord. And, and they're just sort of, they continue doing what they've always done. And, and so the issue is these judgment events have continued to hit one after another after another. And the people have stayed going, keeping the status quo. And so then the Lord interjects in verse 14. He goes, Joel's prophesying goes, here's the issues, guys. Now, let me give you the answer. Verse 14, he goes, consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. In a time of crisis... The Bible gives us the prescription to see further crisis averted and the biblical prescription is massive gatherings of fasting and prayer with repentance. That is the answer. That's the answer. Notice he didn't go, I've got a new agricultural strategy. We're gonna pipe water in from the Mediterranean. We're going to irrigate all the land. We're going to work it all out. Well, so often, we have spiritual crisis and we try to answer it with natural means. There is no natural answer to a spiritual crisis. The only answer to a spiritual crisis is a spiritual answer. And I fear that sometimes we become so naturally minded that all we have are natural answers. When what the Lord gives us and prescribes to us are spiritual answers, but if we're so naturally minded, we don't, have to pull the, we don't even have to pull the trigger on it. You know, piping water in from the Mediterranean in some sort of irrigation plan might make more natural sense. It might be more logical. We're not, we're not talking about thousands of miles. You know, it's not very far. They could have come up with some kind of aqueduct system and just made it work. But that's foolishness. The wisdom of men is foolishness. In the eyes of the Lord, the answer is fasting and prayer and turning to the Lord and massive gatherings. Crying out for God to do something. You know what the Lord will do? He'll allow the situation to get so severe until we just, just kind of wake up from our dullness. We go, you know, we might really need to do something radical. Like pray. Really. He has no problem starving us out from his own promises so that we'll seek him with all of our hearts. Because ultimately, that's what he's after. He's after our hearts. That's what he's after. He doesn't care about our air conditioning. He doesn't care about our 401k. He doesn't care about our our style or our clothes or any. He doesn't care about all of our temporal comforts. He does not care. He cares about our heart. Ask Job if God cared about his temporal comforts. Ask Israel if God cared about the temporal comfort. No, he took it away so they would seek him with all their heart. He cares on a level far deeper than we imagine. Sometimes we just relegate the blessing of the Lord to some shallow, temporal, kind of need-meeting thing. God just meets all of our needs. And I believe he is a need-meeting God, but we just leave it at the shallow level, not recognizing he's actually trying to conform us to the image of his son, actually trying to press us into the mold of Christ. He's actually trying to get a bride in the earth that's comparable, that will be a comparable partner for Jesus who willingly laid his life down for his bride. He's not as interested in our temporal comforts as we imagine. He's interested in our hearts. Now through the prophecy of Joel 1 you got the issue you got the answer but here's the, here's the twist the revelation is this and Joel tells them he says what you've already seen is nothing compared to what's coming because what you've seen is only it's only the prophetic type of what the real prophecy is about. He says it in verse 15. After he says, here's the answer, call a fast, gather in fasting and prayer and repent, turn to the Lord and cry out. Verse 15 he says, alas, here's why. For the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come, future, as destruction from the Almighty. Here's the point he's making to me. He goes, guys, these locust plagues, this drought, these fires no that's not the end because that was just the picture of what's coming that was just the picture that was just the prophetic type something is about to come the day of the lord is about to come and that would that right there that just gives me butterflies if you, had, if you had lived through these things and he said, hey, this isn't really the main thing. The main thing is getting ready to happen. That would compel you, wouldn't it? What's interesting is in chapter one, he, he talks about the, the locusts as a nation that's come up against his land. And, so, and it's, a, it's, it's prophetic language. To speak of about of of what's about to come. Because in chapter two, he describes it. He goes, It's the day of the Lord is about to come, and, and it's not just a locust army that you need to be worried about, it's a physical army. There's a real army coming. Unless you'll turn and repent and, and cry out to me and rend your heart. He goes, there's a physical, real army coming that's going to devour Israel. And Joel prophesized the Babylonian invasion right here. And when you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, he gives great detail about the Babylonian army that the Lord is raising up as an instrument of judgment if the people will not turn. We've got to deal with these things, beloved. He is kind. He is merciful. He is slow to anger, willing to relent. The question is, Will the hearts of humankind, and really the issue isn't even the the lost. The issue is, will the heart of the church turn back to God? Will we repent of sin? Will we repent of our compromise, of our prayerlessness? Will we repent of of our dullness and our focus on other things? And will we turn our hearts to God? He goes, this human army that's coming, it's not like any other army that's ever been. Look at verse 2, right there, the second part. He goes, a people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. And he gives details. He goes, a fire burns before him. They devour the, the land. They leave it desolate. That's what the Roman, I mean the uh, Babylonian army did. They would burn, they would they scorch the earth. Look at verse eleven. The Lord gives voice before his army. People have misunderstood that verse because they've not understood that the Lord is the one who raises up the foreign army as a judgment instrument. That's what he does. He goes, his camp is very great and strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Beloved, I I have to tell you that the, the series of trials and challenges and disasters that our nation and the, the nations of the earth have seen are nothing compared to what is coming. Because ultimately what's coming is this. A man who the nations of the earth with one heart and one mind will follow, and that they, he will be the perfect humanistic choice as leader. That man will be Antichrist. That is coming. This day of the Lord prefigures the future day of the Lord. Just as there were a series of crisis events. Unto the real crisis with the army being raised up, beloved, I believe we're seeing the beginnings of what Jesus called birth bangs that are beginning to happen in the earth and it's a prefigurement of judgment because there is a real army, a real antichrist that's gonna come on the earth. And I tell you, in that hour, all the gray areas will be kicked out. All the props that we prop ourselves out with, up with will be kicked out and it will be Christ or Antichrist. It's the day of the Lord. The historic days of the Lord tell us about the future day of the Lord. And we have time. Not as much as I'd like, I don't think. But we do have time. And we have the clear prophecy of scripture in how to respond when you see crisis abounding in the earth. And so Joel goes on in chapter two, and it's kind of like he goes, if you didn't hear me in chapter one, let me say it again for you. Let me reiterate the answer for you in chapter two. Look at verse 12. He goes, now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. So rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he'll turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. A grain offering and a drink offering. He's talking about the agricultural crisis they were in. For the Lord your God. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly. That is the prescribed action when the earth is in crisis. Crying out to the Lord with hearts, rent. Notice he says, "Rend your hearts and not your garments. That's so critical because if you've been around church at all, you know what repentance is supposed to look like. You know what it looks like on the outside. And so oftentimes the people of God will have an external repentance that doesn't go deep. It, they rip their garments, so to speak, but they don't rip their heart. And the Lord is crying out for Inner change that affects the outside. Let me just be honest. You and I can fake each other out. We can come in here, close our eyes, lift our hands, smile, say all the Christianese you want. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, amen, blessed. And, And never... Be real about what's going on inside of us. Never be open or truthful about the state of our heart. Once you sort of get the Christian culture of Western churches, you can flow in and out. You can sit on the front or on the back. It doesn't really matter. All you got to do is say the right words, smile at the right time, say the amen in the right spot, raise your hand, stand up, sit down, and you look just fine. And I tell you, beloved, the Lord is after something else. A people whose hearts are wholly His. A people that will adore Jesus above everything else. A people that will, I mean, just get sick over sin. To just get nauseated over the fact of, of selling God out to another earthly pleasure. Of people who would say, not just the external Lord, but have all of me, have all of me. That's what he's after. And where compromise exists in the body of Christ and in this place, in this community, darkness will exist. Where sin exists, I don't even have to know about it. Nobody has to know about it. Where sin exists in your heart, you're a part of me. I'm a part of you. We're a part of each other. Where sin exists here, it exists in us. And darkness has a foothold. It has access. And the requirement of the Lord is true repentance. Repentance. And repentance is simply this, a turning away. It's a turning to God. It's a Jesus, be glorified, be Lord, be exalted, be everything. I don't want anything to get in the way between you and I. That's it. It's an agreement with light and a disagreement with darkness. It doesn't have to look like face down tears you know, and, and cries loud before the Lord. It doesn't have to look like that. It can simply look like, I don't want sin anymore. I want you. I want you. Now it may be tears and, and cries. That's fine. But the external of crying and, and 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 weeping and yelling and all that without the internal. It's not what the Lord's after. He's after hearts that are ripped open. That is the prescription to turn the tide. That's the prescription to stave off further judgments. The exaltation of Christ and a people being wholly His. Wholly His. Jesus being preeminent first above everything else. I wonder sometimes when the service goes 15 minutes longer than usual. And we're tapping our foot and we're like, man, I need to get on. I mean, really? I'm not saying that in judgment, I'm just saying, (laughs) is, is is he worthy of our 15 extra minutes? He's worthy of that and much more. He's after a bride that loves him as he loves her. He's after a people whose hearts are broken before him. You can hear a word like this and get condemned over sin, and that's not the point either. The point is run to him if there is sin. Run out of that, it will kill you. And run to him and receive life. That's the point. The point isn't to get into some game of shame where you beat yourself up. The point is, there is an answer. It's Jesus. He's the answer. He's the answer for whatever is taking your affection from him. He's the answer. Whatever's dominating your your mind and and your actions that's, that's stealing your heart from him, he's the answer. Run away from it and run to him. Run to him. Rend your heart. Not just, You're outside. Rend your heart. Because he's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's of great kindness. You know what Joel's message was to them? His message was, guys, God is so kind. If you'll turn to him, he might actually turn this judgment away. If you really turn to him, he's so tender hearted and he loves his people so much. If we'll return to the Lord, he could turn the judgment away and leave us blessing instead of judgment. He's so good that he responds to the, the prayers and the repentance of his own people. He's so kind that way. That's Joel's main message. His main message isn't, you guys are so bad, God's going to kill you, and there's nothing you can do. He's not like that. He's like, God wants to turn. God is kind. If you'll turn, he'll turn. And Beloved, that's the word for America right now. America, if you'll turn, God will turn. If you'll turn, he'll turn. He'll turn the judgments away from us. We must return to him. Here's the thing. We love Joel 2 because Joel 2 promises an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We love that. It shall come to pass in the last days I'll pour out my spirit in all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy dreams and visions, blood, fire, and vapor, smoke. Oh, it's going to be good. A revival and we completely missed the point. Joel 2:28, the promised blessing. Joel 2:28 through 32, that promised outpouring of the spirit, the promised salvation of the masses, the promised signs and wonders and blessing of Joel 2:28 through 32. It only comes after the turning of Joel 2:12 through 17. You can't get Joel 2, 28 through 32 without the return to me, says the Lord. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Rend your hearts and not your garments is the precursor. It's the the precedent. It's the requirement, the prerequisite to get the outpouring of the Spirit. It doesn't come another way, beloved. We're foolish to imagine that it does. There's a required turning for the promised outpouring. That's so important. And I love the promise. I'm staking my life on that promise. That there will be massive Outpouring of the Spirit of God, not only in this place, but in this city and in this nation and in the earth. I'm staking my life on this promise. That there is a great move of the Spirit coming before the day of the Lord, before great judgments and the return of the Lord. There's a great outpouring that's going to see all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's an outpouring that's gonna touch all flesh across the nations. Oh, we've never seen the likes of what God has in store. And so that promised outpouring, there's going to be a repentance and a returning. If he can promise the outpouring, then we know that there is a repentance and returning that will happen. And the question is, when will we respond? Will we respond after the first four locust plagues? Will it take a drought? Will it take fire to develop, devour the land? Are we going to wait for the Babylonian army to destroy everything? How long? It's like I can hear the voice of Elijah prophesying on Carmel. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. But choose one and go for it. And fire came down. You know, if the people of God would turn with fasting and prayer, really turn to the Lord, rooting out all the doubtful areas, rooting out all the little compromises, all the little foxes that are spoiling the vine, asking Holy Spirit to shine the light of conviction, really laying their hearts bare before God and saying, investigate my life and make me clean. Oh, beloved, he would rain down righteousness on us and pour out his spirit upon us. That is the great need of our hour. I tell you, the great need of our hour isn't that, quote unquote, America would be, quote unquote, great again. The great need of our hour is that Jesus Christ would be great again. That we would see him as great. There's so many prognosticators right now and they're speaking of financial crisis that's imminent. I mean, it is so over the top. And the media, you can, I mean, you can read on it on any day. And somehow we believe it's in the hands of the legislators whether or not America's economy will continue to flourish or whether it will continue to languish or even get far worse. I tell you, it's not in the hands of the legislators. It's in the hands of God. And if the people of God will turn, Who knows how it will go? But I tell you, I'm not sure if a quote-unquote flourishing economy is the best thing for America. I wonder if a little leanness might cause us to reach out to God. Might wake us up a little bit out of our stupor, our financially induced narcolepsy. I wonder if the Lord doesn't want to humble us that He might pour grace upon us. The parallels are so obvious between Joel 1 and Joel 2 and where we're living today, they're so obvious. We've got to turn. This is where the mentality of a culture of prayer ultimately takes us to hearts that are rent before God. We live a lifestyle of consecration and fasting and prayer, turning and living in a perpetual solemn assembly. That's where it's going, beloved. And that perpetual solemn assembly is going to give way to a perpetual outpouring of the Spirit. That's where this whole shift is heading. It's a massive outbreak of the Spirit of God on a people whose hearts are wholly His. And it's not going to just be revival in the church, where the church kind of gets a new breath. There is an awakening coming to the earth. There's an awakening coming to America that's going to see mass numbers of lost people born again. There is an awakening that God wants to release in America that's going to shift things culturally. There is another great awakening on the horizon. And I tell you right now, it's the hour for the people of God to turn with fasting and prayer and pray prayers of desire and sing songs of desire that we would see the Lord reign righteousness on. a Joel 2 hour. And that's why I'm so excited about what's coming up August 6th. The United States governor would call a Joel 2 solemn assembly of fasting and repentance that America would turn. Oh, this could be the hour, beloved. This could be the hour. And my word to us is that we, that we would say yes with hearts wide open before the Lord. Wide open, say, Jesus, investigate us. Spirit of God, investigate us. Remove from me any doubtful areas. Show me what's not pleasing. I want to turn to you. I want to rend my heart. Because I want you to re- release a blessing on us, God. Moving of your spirit, God. That's the blessing we need the exaltation of Christ. Let's just stand. It's impossible for me to preach a message like this and act like I'm fine. I need the Lord. I need Him to come and shine on my heart. There's there's areas I'm aware of and areas I'm not and I, I just want the Lord to identify whatever is in me. I could truly, with a heart that's wide open to God, turn, turn. So I want to just take a moment, all of us, ask the Holy Spirit to come and investigate us some of us he will make certain things obvious to you right now some of you it will be in a day ahead compromises and unforgivenesses the key is to allow Holy Spirit to always speak and then to turn when he says here or there in light of what we're saying, Joel 1 and 2, in light of the urgency of the hour in light of the status of our nation, we cannot keep going as if everything is fine We've we've got to turn we've got to turn we've got to turn want to invite you to respond to the Lord in whatever way seems best to you if you want to come forward that's fine if you want to sit that's fine if you want to kneel that's fine whatever seems best to you I just want to take a few moments right now and ask the Holy Spirit to convict us come Spirit of the living God shine light on us release conviction I pray God where there's been doubtful things that we've practiced or agreed to I pray release revelation to us convict our hearts God where things are obvious right before our eyes convict us We want to humble ourselves before you and turn to you, God. God, we've been arrogant. We repent. All the inner places. You desire truth in the inner parts. Now come, Holy Spirit of God. I'm asking for real repentance real conviction I believe it's a Joel 2 hour God you are slow to anger you're merciful and kind and it's the responsibility of your people to turn to you so we turn to you God